I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's role and influence in the Middle East, particularly given the Israel-Hamas conflict and the Red Sea Houthi attacks. What is China's current stance on these conflicts? How should we interpret its actions or lack thereof? And what do these responses reveal about China's broader approach to the region and its vision for the international order? Joining us today is Mr. Tuvia Jering. Mr. Jering is a researcher at the Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation, Israel-China Policy Center at the Institute for National Security Studies, and a non-resident fellow in the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub, specializing in Chinese security and foreign policy. Mr. Jering holds a BA degree in East Asian Studies from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and a Master's of Public Health and Disaster and Emergency Management from Tel Aviv University in Israel. Thank you for joining us today, Tuvia. Thank you, Bonnie. Let's start by discussing what has happened. Tuvia, from your perspective, what is the current state of play with respect to the Israel-Hamas war and what we're seeing in the Red Sea? Are tensions in both areas linked? Yeah, I, I think it really depends on who's speaking. Of course, I'm an Israeli sitting in Jerusalem. My position is biased. As you listeners should know, I'm a reservist in the IDF, although I represent only myself here. But the way Israel views it is as follows. So it's been 137 days since the October 7th massacre, where Hamas terrorists butchered, burned, raped and pillaged Israeli towns and kibbutzes on live television. And it still holds 134 hostages, including elderly, young and babies. Over 100 were able to return in a hostage deal. And close to 1,500 Israelis are murdered and a couple of hundred Azores are fallen soldiers. So Israeli policymakers under Netanyahu government declared the war on Hamas, releasing the hostages and eradicating uh, this terrorist force from Gaza. And this has resulted in close to 90% of the population in Gaza. It's about 2.2 million people, 2.3, are now internally displaced. And there's 29,000 uh, approximate dead, according to Hamas controlled Ministry of Health. According to Israeli numbers, at least 12,000 of them are Hamas and Islamic Jihad terrorists who've embedded themselves in the population clusters, uh, using them as human shields. So this means now that about out of 24 battalions of Hamas, there's six left, uh, again, according to Israeli uh, statements. And the next big stand is in Rafah, Rafiach, uh, bordering Egypt, where 1.4 million Palestinians are sheltering right now, sheltering right now. And there are negotiations ongoing all the time between Israel, Hamas, uh, with the mediation of Qatar, the US and others. Uh, but there's no end in sight, there's no ceasefire, no release to the hostages as of yet. With the uh, month of Ramadan approaching next uh, month in March, and also the BB government's uh, right wing are pushing for restrictions on the Temple Mount, there's a very high possibility of a regional flare-up. And all the while, the U.S. is supporting Israel in the U.N. Security Council and providing it uh, aid, but also emphasizing that Israel provide humanitarian aid to the Palestinians and that it also limits the harm to non-combatants. 
Um, and many international viewers are criticizing Israel, saying that their mission to eradicate Hamas is unrealistic. And this causes a lot of frustration in D.C. because it appears that the U.S. is helping Israel to carry on uh, senseless strikes against the uh, population. And it doesn't make sense because there is no political end in sight to this war. Um, a lot of, I think, international consensus is for the two-state solution. And even now, their Israeli partners are trying to push Israel to accept this reality and forcing it to do so including in the U.S. And Israelis, on their part, think that this would be a prize for terrorism and for Hamas. And it has already stated that it will continue to attack Israel just as it did on October 7th, again and again, until it eradicates the Jewish state. So how this connects to the Red Sea, you ask? And uh, here again, it depends on how you view it. So the Houthis that are Iran-backed terrorists, back and uh, they are backed uh, financially and technologically. They started attacking shipping in uh, the Red Sea, and most importantly in the Red Sea Corridor, the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, in November. They said it's in solidarity with the Palestinians. And of course, we know that this is just a pretext, and that's something that uh, people are having trouble to differentiate between cause and pretext. They had attacked before the Gulf states, Again, with Iranian help, with UAVs, with missiles, the same technologies it's been using against Israel and against maritime shipping lanes. And because of these attacks now that first started uh, ostensibly against Israeli target, but then it became more arbitrary and attacked almost any ship coming through the Strait and the Red Sea, including Chinese ships. So the U.S. launched an operation called Prosperity Guardian in December. And it mostly it's the U.S. and the U.K. that have attacked Houthi targets in Yemen. Again, the Houthis control most of Yemen after almost a decade of civil war with, and the coalition led by Saudi Arabia that wasn't able to uh, eradicate them. And it was this uh, week we're recording on February 20th, European Union uh, launched a naval mission of itself to protect shipping lanes from the Houthis. And there were also regional flare-ups in, in this war that can be connected to the Red Sea when Hezbollah, also backed by Iran, and they're situated in Lebanon, they launched an attack on Israel on, on October 8th. Again, ostensibly in solidarity with the Palestinians, but this is slowly but surely escalating into a tit-for-tat uh, war of attrition that is becoming more intense and the targets are becoming more qualitative on both ends and there's a very high risk of regional war. U.S. military was also attacked from Iraq and Syria and uh, if you remember earlier this month in February uh, or was it later last month that uh, three U.S. soldiers were killed in the first time in history by loitering munition, a UAV launch from uh, Iraq. So yeah, that's the, how the situation is right now, I think. Thank you so much for this comprehensive assessment of the state of the situation. Given the high risk of regional war, what is China doing, if anything? Maybe we could start from discussing from your perspective, how does China view the situation? Is China as worried about escalating conflict in the Middle East? And would a conflict in the Middle East be that significant or devastating for China? So 
I, I think the way I see it, China views it in its Marxist fashion of dialectics. So it has said that it is worried about peace and stability in the region and the way it harms its interests. But uh, with the risk, there's also some reward. And here that the harm caused to the U.S. and the West are much, is much higher. Now, officially, Chinese position, and that was stated in Munich this week in February by Wang Yi, is that Palestine remains a core issue of the Middle East. That is a position made by Xi Jinping over a decade ago as well. And they also see this war is just another round of the conflict, of this decade-long conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. This is not nothing new to them. So massacre of October 7th and uh, inhumanity and crimes against humanity, they are just another Monday for the Chinese. And that's how they've been describing it internally as well, uh, not just officially. And they also said, and here we need to make differentiation between the official position and what they're actually thinking, which we don't know. But they're saying that the U.S. is at fault here. And it's the U.S. that was the trigger for this Hamas retaliation, uh, the way they describe uh, Hamas terrorist attacks. And for this reason, there must be an immediate ceasefire. This is, of course, a position that is an international consensus. This is not uh, unique to China. They also want to create more humanitarian corridors for the civilians trapped in Gaza. And they're asking to convene larger, more influential uh, international peace conference. And by more, the emphasis here is one that is not led by the U.S. and the West. And again, from the same, following the same logic, they also made it clear that the root cause, as they describe it, of the attacks in the Red Sea are the war in Gaza. So as soon as you stop the war in Gaza, there won't be attacks on the Red Sea. And they even went out of saying that it's the US and the UK that, God forbid, are attacking a sovereign country, Yemen, and also Syria and Iraq without authority of the UN Security Council. And you know, they haven't said a thing about Israel being attacked on six fronts by Iran-backed terrorist groups, but that's beside the question. Um, yeah, so that's the official position right now. It's this combination of both uh, risk opportunities and there's a lot of thinking going on in Beijing at the moment. And how much has Chinese shipping been impacted by what's going on in the Red Sea? And to what extent has the Israel-Hamas war hurt China's economic interests in the region? I think the effect of the Houthi attacks on international shipping are quite uh, glaring. And you can see just by looking at the popular indexes of uh, container leasing rates, uh, especially those coming from the east to the west, example, from China to the U.S. east or west coast. So you see a threefold increase in the price from about uh, $500 to 1500 And uh, there's another index called the Drury World Container Index. And there the rates now for a 40-feet container are about $4,000 uh, today when compared to about 1500 let's say, in November before the Houthi attack. So this is not as bad as during the height of COVID when it crossed the $20,000 barrier. And some uh, analysts anticipate that the prices will lower now after the Chinese New Year. And uh, this has also been uh, contrary to the prevailing uh, thinking, it's been a boon for the shipping industry in China and in the world because 
now there's higher demand for them, but it does squeeze manufacturers and exporters and importers. And there's high demand for empty containers going to China and filling up to send to the rest of the world and Europe, the US. And they're already suffering from sluggish demand at home in China. And that's one thing. Another thing which concerns the Chinese is the energy prices. So China now imports about 50% of its energy from the Middle East. And prices remain relatively okay for China, but it wasn't long ago that the Iranians supplied Houthi drones and missiles. They crippled half of Saudi Arabia's Aramco's when they hit it, I think, in 2019. And that, according to one estimate, made China pay additional $100 million per day. And this is why China is really worried if this uh, war that Israel now has with Hezbollah in Lebanon or uh, between the U.S. and the Houthis will escalate to a regional conflict. Uh, This will impact uh, China's trade, it impact uh, energy prices, and we haven't even talked about Chinese investment in the region. And under the Belt and Road Initiative, China has been investing to the tune of $200 billion of the in different countries in the Middle East and North Africa. And they stand to lose billions and billions of dollars if uh, something were to erupt here. So I think they are very concerned, despite the opportunities that they have. Tubia, you had shared how Chinese officials view the Israel-Hamas war. To what extent have you been able to track or see Chinese domestic public opinion on this topic? Are there any public debates within China? Yes. Yeah, so it's always a tough question when you want to glean into Chinese domestic opinion and public debate and the difference between the elite of the Chinese Communist Party and the common man or woman. And again, here for me, sitting in Israel, it's very hard to decipher what people are actually thinking and saying. I know from people, academics sitting in Beijing, when uh, people turn off their cell phones and recording devices, then they say very different things about uh, everything almost, especially about Xi Jinping, than they say when they're on the record. So that's one caveat we need to keep in mind. Um, But the greatest majority of opinions and comments I've seen coming from the People's Republic of China are very similar to what we see in Chinese reaction over Ukraine. And uh, let me explain what this means. So for two years now, Chinese official position over Ukraine is that it's the U.S.'s fault. It's a dying empire and it's fanning the flames to perpetuate its hegemony, whether it's in Europe or here in the Middle East. That's why it's supplying weapons helplessly to Ukraine and also to Israel now, eventually maybe to Taiwan. And uh, also some saying, and that's something they heard from the Russian peers for two years, that Jews are Nazis. So we're seeing this uh, here as well, including from China, really ugly remarks and uh, blatant uh, expressions of anti-Semitism. That said, you can still see some divergence in opinion. And when you look a little deeper, for example, when looking at Weibo, you could still see some people that are shocked by Hamas terrorism as they were by Russian terrorism over Ukraine in the last two years. When you speak with intelligentsia, I have a couple of friends that are artists, and they they are probably some of the few that asked 
for my well-being on the first week of October 7th. But even the academics are very worried uh, speaking now with Israelis because of the official position, even though they dedicated their lives to improving people-to-people times. Uh, there was uh, one notable example of professor from Chinese Academy of Social Science. His name is Ying Gang. He's a very seasoned uh, Middle East uh, researcher. So he wrote an article early during the war Sorry, it wasn't an article. It was an interview with Phoenix TV. Uh, then it became an article. And he openly criticized uh, Hamas and, contrary to China's official position, identified Hamas as the root cause of the war and conflict in the region. And uh, he went through a history over the decades how Hamas been responsible. And he got a lot of flack for it. Um, from other academics, and uh, except for him, there are very few now that are willing to speak uh, differently than the main line is set by the Chinese Communist Party. We've talked about how Chinese officials and the Chinese public view the Israel-Hamas war. Do you have any sense of how China's leader, top leader, Xi Jinping, views the war? And what are his positions? Yeah, so again, we're looking at a black box when it comes to Xi Jinping, but uh, we have anecdotal evidence to give us uh, an idea. So for Xi Jinping, he has a lot on his plate right now. The economy in China is a dumpster fire, and Li Qiang is trying his best to put it out. Uh, you got the real estate bubble deflating, the slowing growth, the stock sitting, financial crisis levels, youth unemployment, consumption low after the holiday, population shrinking, etc. Um, and because of all of this, you, you tend to believe that China would be less interested in the Middle East and other regions of the world. There's also a lot happening right now in the South China Sea, especially with the Philippines, but also, also with Taiwan and Kinmen. So that's one part of the story. Another, Xi Jinping has barely spoken about this war. One uh, notable uh, exception during a BRICS Plus summit where he gave the Chinese talking points about it. But uh, except for that, he didn't speak almost at all about this war, just in general terms. So Xi Jinping, he hasn't spoken about this at all. And I think the best indication to understand how interested he is in this conflict in mediating it and playing China's ostensible great uh, power role or major power. He never visited Israel ever or the Palestinian Authority. And not just him, Wang Yi, the last time he was in our neighborhood was in 2013. And compare that to Blinken, who was just here recently for the fifth time since October 7th. Uh, Biden came here also after the war started supporting Israel. And uh, I think it tells you quite enough about uh, how much Xi Jinping cares about uh, the war. I think China's concern for the region has increased under his leadership uh, because he has visited the region much more than his predecessors, uh, Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin. And he has signed all these strategic uh, agreements with the different countries here. So, um, again... Israel and the Palestinians, not very interesting. The rest of the region, a bit more so. And their interconnectedness, of course, is also important. And China's approach on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict serves its interests with the greater region, with Iran, Turkey, and the Gulf, Egypt, and so on. Great, thank you. I think now is a good time to discuss how China has responded to what's happening. 
Have you seen China take any serious effort to mediate or de-escalate this conflict? How do you view China's current level of activity? So, China's involvement in mediation is lackluster. It's very high on rhetoric, very low on action. So during November, it was the rotating president of the UN Security Council and their permanent representative, Zhang Tun, who's been their chief virtue signaler on Palestinian affairs for uh, years now. He's uh, made very contrarian remarks, let's, let's say, about Israel, even rebuked Israeli representatives and prevented Israeli testimonies from going on the uh, UN. And they made a lot, all of these statements that are against Israel and in support of the Palestinians and ignoring Israel's right to self-defense and not condemning Hamas and not uh, referring to the hostages and so on. But when it comes to action, uh, there's very little. Uh, China's humanitarian aid to the Palestinian is slim. It's about a couple of million dollars for an $18 trillion economy. And Chinese ships, if you talk about the Red Sea, so they have a base in Djibouti, but they ignore distress calls from Israeli ships under attack. And they haven't participated naturally with the U.S.-led task force. They're not going to join European task force. And even when the U.K.'s Cameron and Canada's Jolie asked them to join, they won't. Uh, so don't hold your breath. They did dispatch a special envoy to the region, as they have been doing since 2002, Jai Jun. And he was on a tour. China described it as shuttle diplomacy, as if he was John Kerry, you know, doing 100 visits. He didn't stop in Israel. He's now, I think, incapacitated. I don't know what happened to him, but I don't think he's in a line of health. Wang Yi, he spoke with all his peers in the region, except for the Israelis. And again, Zhang Jun, also, he came and visited Rafah, but he didn't bother to cross the border to speak with the Israelis. So, so again, for uh, and last, lastly, I think it's important, uh, China released a position paper. Here, another similarity with Ukraine. It also released a position paper on Ukraine with 12 points here, a few points there. Both are completely inconsequential, irrelevant, and unknown to people sitting in Israel or Ukraine because they really are not supposed to serve mediation. They are just aimed to serve China's image and to serve its great power competition. If it really wanted to become involved in mediation, it could have done a lot more. And I think uh, everything I listed shows you that it's not really interested in serious mediation. So in terms of China not being serious about mediation and serving its own interest, what do you think is China's top interest right now? It seems like what you're saying is it's not necessarily in China's interest to prolong the conflict or have the conflict escalate to a regional war. On the other hand, you're also describing China as not doing very much. So what exactly is China trying to do to protect its own interest? Is it just protecting its own investment, its own relationships with the region? How do you view the situation? I think what we're seeing is less strategic, you know, mastermind moving pieces on a chessboard. I think there's a lot of reactivity to Chinese policy, both here in the region and in Europe. And I think it's because of the similarity of both situations. And that's the catch. As with Russian President Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine, this so-called no-limit partner, it caught China by surprise, the same way 
the Hamas attack caught the world and China as well by surprise. And China now is faced with two irreconcilable goals that it needs to straddle between, as it did with Ukraine. So on the one hand, there's this wish to maintain global peace and stability that are beneficial for its economic development and for its national rejuvenation. And on the other hand, they can pursue geopolitical interests amid the ongoing conflicts. And because of this, and I think also because of Xi Jinping, and after three years of COVID, which did a lot of damage to China's diplomacy and understanding of the world, and also its dialogue with the world, there's just paralysis in many ways in the Chinese system. And for this reason, from the first week, what we saw in Chinese reaction to this war in the Middle East is just borrowing the same reactions, almost verbatim, from their reaction to Ukraine. And if we dig a little deeper, you can start to understand why it's so difficult for China. Because on the one hand, it's a no-brainer. And many people ask themselves, why has China not joined uh, the coalition or at least condemned the Houthis? Because it is Chinese shipments that are being attacked, right? And it's Chinese interests that are being implicated by Iran-backed terrorism. So it should be a no-brainer for them to join. And on the the other hand of uh, this uh, Gulf, you got the Sunni moderates that share China's uh, visions for development and peace through, secu- through development and so on. But if China put its money on the Sunni Gulf and joined the coalition with the U.S., it would only perpetuate this regional order and even international order that Xi Jinping has been trying his best to undermine because he believes that this conflict here, this war, and the same in Ukraine, is just a sequela. It's just reaction of this old westernized hegemonic order that is falling apart and this block confrontation led by the U.S., whereas China, it's going to lead a better alternative order, and it's trying to upend it. So this is not just playing second fiddle to the U.S. by supporting its coalition and perpetuating its hegemony here. It would also mean that when China attacks Taiwan, you're going to have the U.S. controlling the maritime choking points that, as you recall, are important for China's energy security. So on the one hand, again, you got this perception that China needs to maintain its economy and stability. But on the other, you got the U.S. here squandering its blood, its treasure, and its, importantly, reputation as a security guarantor, as the world's police, hegemon. And China doesn't have to do a lot. They just need to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And from the comfort of the peanut gallery of the UN, it heckles Israel, it heckles the US. And again, it does come with costs. Um, This is not cost-free, of course. It does need to sustain economic damages. The radicalization of Muslims, which I think is one of the greatest successes of Hamas, since October 7. This will backfire. And for the same reason that China now oppresses and brutalizes uh, Muslim minorities in Xinjiang, then this could come and haunt China again in the future because China helps Iran-backed fundamentalist Islamism instead of uh, helping this new force of the the more moderate Muslims. 
So, yeah, this is a very difficult position for China. And that's why we see a lot, I think, reactivity and just going with the flow and a lot of trying to echo international consensus and the narratives and not leading a lot. So in terms of trying to echo the international consensus and not leading, to what extent are you seeing China echo Russian positions or adopt positions similar to what Russia has taken in this conflict? I see a lot of similarity in narratives. And uh, this similarity leads many analysts to describe this emerging new axis of evil, right? I disagree with this position. I don't see an axis of evil. There's good research describing the different interests of these countries. There was this analysis by a Chinese author this week writing pretty anti-Semitic stuff. Um, But uh, beside the point, he also said that Russia and Chinese economy right now is, is just a show. Russia has always been historically China's greatest threat. And I think many historians would agree. But uh, when it comes to countering the U.S.-led international order and undermining it and dismantling it, they share similar dispositions and they want to echo each other's narratives. And indeed, we saw since, especially since the war in Ukraine started, uh, more media agreements between these countries, between China, between Russia, Iran, sometimes even North Korea, and even some collaborations, including in some operatics and uh, commentators from China uh, working for Russian media and vice versa. So yes, there is some similarity. The difference, I think, is in their approach to Hamas terrorism. Nowadays, uh, Russia is hosting Hamas delegation for at least the second time that uh, openly in uh, Moscow. Uh, China hasn't done so. It is more shy of showing open collaboration with Hamas, although according to Hamas report, they did meet with them both in Beijing and in uh, Qatar, in Kuwait, sorry, but there's not a lot of evidence for this. And uh, I think China is a bit more hesitant than Russia in uh, supporting militarily the different actors. So China, uh, sorry, so Russia and Iran, since the war in Ukraine started, have been cooperating much more strategically in uh, weapon sales and technology sharing and also intelligence to some extent. And China here is less involved, although it is involved indirectly by trading with Iran, which is, again, the chief spoiler of this region, according to my Israeli view, uh, by importing about 90% of Iranian oil uh, through sanction circumventing routes, and also by exporting uh, sanctioned technologies uh, from China to Iran and also some materials that are needed for its ballistic missiles and UAVs that it shares here in the region with the Houthis. So, again, this is a very complex uh, situation where China is more hesitant to become involved than the Russians and taking a lead than the Russians. And when there was reports in, during the New Year's Eve of Chinese weapons found in Hamas tunnels, they were quick, quick to dismiss them. And uh, I can also say from my sources that uh, there's not a lot of Chinese weapons that were found. So contrary to the report. So, yes, that's, uh, I think, the situation right now. If a war does, a regional war does uh, happen and things escalate, I think we're going to see different reactions from 
Russia and China, and it remains to be seen. I don't know. You mentioned that if we had a regional war, you think China could take a different position than Russia. What would be that difference, and what would be that Chinese position? No, I think it's it's a good uh, exercise uh, trying to view the different routes that this war can take. And, and I think people listening here, policymakers especially, they need to do spe- especially this kind of thinking, looking at the different routes that this war can evolve and how it might affect the interests of China and Russia and other extraterritorial powers, the US as well, and Europe. And there are many different ways it can go. The way it's going right now for China is, I think, a best case scenario where you have a friction that is a bit, you know, it's more than a conflict, it's less than a war. And that is fine because it can be contained to an extent. And if you reach a ceasefire, all is well. China reaps all the benefits of the reputation and the U.S. lost blood, treasure and the resources and no harm done. But if a regional war starts and the U.S. becomes entangled in it, then this could mean that the U.S. may become overstretched between two fronts, Europe and the Middle East. And Chinese analysts have been speaking about this since the beginning, about this possibility that the U.S. will become would become overstretched. And there they add another third front, which is the South China Sea and Taiwan. And for Russia, it would continue its war in Ukraine. So there's no change here. It might even increase its support for Iran. But for China, it could be an unprecedented opportunity while the U.S. is distracted to make a move on Taiwan. And again, I really don't know. I don't know what China is thinking. I don't know what other interests are at stake. And it's just uh, speculation. But this speculation is very important to conduct now because things are not improving. They are only becoming worse. Thank you very much. We could probably spend hours thinking through the different scenarios that could happen if the Israel-Hamas conflict sparks a larger regional war. But in the interest of time, I would like to end on one final question for you. What can we learn from China's response to the conflict in the Middle East? And you had referenced quite a bit China's response to the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What does China's response show in terms of how China approaches its broader foreign policy strategy and how China may manage international crises? Yeah, so this is the perfect question, because I think there is... As the cliche goes, a lot of continuity and a lot of change in China's policy toward the Middle East. And earlier this month, there was this seminar in Renming University, and one of the keynote speakers was China's former special envoy to the Middle East, Wu Suka. He's now a very known pundit on everything on Middle East affairs. He's also an advisor to the Chinese government on Middle Eastern affairs. And he said as follows. He said that the Middle East is a strategic partner for our national rejuvenation, and it has the potential to become a strategic pillar for us in dealing with the major power competition. And it is therefore necessary that we carefully consider the big picture, the Quanju, some uh, say it is Daju, and we need to strategize accordingly. Uh, And it's not just him. I saw other 
very notable Middle East experts that are either former diplomats or working with uh, the Ministry of State Security that made similar comments. And this is why I think it's significant and why I'm very pessimistic about the possibility of China and the U.S. cooperating in the region. Because in the past, this region has been described in China as a buffer zone, as a Zhongjian kind of Dichu. And what they mean by that? They mean that when China and the U.S. were in conflict throughout the, the last few decades, it was always through the Middle East that they were able to find common ground and uh, improve their relations. So after Tiananmen in 89, you had in the 1990 Foreign Minister Tian Chen, he said that they would back UN Security Council resolution by abstaining, which... Uh, in fact, authorized the use of force against Iraq, okay, by the U.S. Uh, coalition. And the same thing happened after the U.S. bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade was uh, intentional or unintentional. And there was another incident in Hainan uh, with a spy plane in 2001. China and the U.S. were able to make nice after they joined the war on terror together, after 9-11. And there's another thing happened last decades when China joined the U.N. sanctions on Iran where there's a lot of friction between Obama administration and his pivot to China and the South China Sea militarization. But today, unfortunately, I think that Wu Suke's remarks and others are very telling because now they don't see it anymore as a buffer zone. They see it as it used to be historically. The Middle East is, again, and I'm paraphrasing him, it's long being a battleground for supremacy between major powers. And unfortunately, I think this is where we're headed right now. And this is what we can learn from Chinese current reaction to this evolving crisis and what it tells us about its greater grand strategy, the Daju, which is the East is rising, the West is declining, great changes unseen in the century, as Xi Jinping told Putin a few months ago when he met him in person. And you and I are driving these changes. And you as China, how would you dare, how do you have the chutzpah to stand between history and reality? So history is taking its course. The East is rising. And if a couple of Jews and Palestinians dies, too bad, but. Thank you. That is a very clear-eyed view of looking at how China is dealing with crises and conflicts. You're saying that China will always prioritize their overall strategy, competition, and quests for rejuvenation, and that will then impact how they respond to specific situations. In many ways, you're also suggesting that we'll likely see very few areas, at least from the U.S. perspective, where we can actually work with China in managing these international crises or international situations because of differences between the U.S. and Chinese interests. Yes, and this is very grim. I mean, we don't need to hypothesize here because we do have an international global crisis that is happening, unfolding, which is climate change. And it's not just, you know, war on terror and fentanyl crisis where they don't collaborate and COVID. So there was one scholar of China, I forgot who it was, said that uh, if aliens attacked planet Earth tomorrow morning, you'd still going to have China and the U.S., arguing until humanity is obliterated. And I think we, we got a glimpse of that in the Wandering Earth film where the U.S. is not to be seen. 
And that's just the sad zero-sum game that we're at. So policymakers in China and the U.S. listening right now, you know, it's up to you. Tuvia, thank you very much for this very insightful, honest, and candid reflections and comments on how China is responding to the situation in the Middle East. I really enjoyed speaking with you today, and really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Bonnie, for having me. It's a pleasure. Sad I had to be in this dire circumstances. But it's good to talk. Mm-hmm.